Welcome to another episode of the Forward Together podcast. Uh, my name is Jared Dean, as always, along with me, Paul Gosling. Paul, how are you? I'm great. Good stuff. Good stuff. So today we're continuing an examination, Paul, of models that have worked in other places that maybe we can learn from. So um, he had a conversation with John Ristakis. Do you want to tell us who John is and maybe what you and him had a, had a conversation about? Yeah, th- th- this was... Uh, uh... A conversation across the continents because John's based in Canada, in Vancouver, and he is one of the world's experts on community development and cooperative enterprise. Uh, and he was the, the one of the people who has studied in depth the, the model of social cooperatives in Italy. Now, we've already spoken about the cooperative model in Spain, where there's Mondragon. And Mondragon is large scale big federation, some very large manufacturing cooperatives, some of the world's leading producers of white goods uh, for the kitchen and so on. Uh, The example in Italy is very different because in Italy, they've got a movement, what they call social cooperatives. And these are different types of cooperatives. They they bring together people who work there and the people who benefit from the services. And they are a substitute for the state providing social services. And it's uh, basically, an example that's been copied in much of Europe, so that um, in France and also in Spain and some other countries in the the Benelux countries, they're looking to replicate what has happened in Northern Italy. And indeed, what's happened in Northern Italy has spread across the country of Italy down to the south as well. Yeah. And I suppose the model of social cooperatives is really good because one of the things that it does is democratizes the, the care service or the service that people get puts them in charge of their own their own destiny if you like or, or what happens to them and it leads to a better service absolutely and uh, there are serious difficulties with the so- social care sector whether you talk about britain northern ireland or indeed in the, the republic of ireland there are serious challenges with the social care uh, system because it, it can be very expensive to deliver Uh, There are often complaints about uh, how responsive the state is when it provides services. There's been a a lot of privatization of social care, and uh, that's meant that people who are already on low pay get even lower pay quite often after the privatization. There's been a lot of private equity investment in the social care sector, which has pushed up profits uh, at the expense of conditions of work and also for the conditions of people who benefit from social care. So there are, there's a lot of concern about the quality of the social care system and perhaps social cooperatives provide an indication of how or an alternative way of delivering this. Okay, well, let's hear the conversation you had with John. Today, I'm joined by John Mastakis, who's joining me from Vancouver in Canada. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll head off here, John, by, by putting this in context. We've done one of the other podcasts recently on Modrigan in Spain. Okay. And of course... Mm-hmm. Mondragon uh, is a big federation. Some of the co-ops in it are very large. But when we talk about the the social co-op movement in Italy, we're talking about much smaller co-ops that are trying to do something quite different because they are typically social services and labour reintegration co-ops, aren't they? Right. So talk me through your perception about uh, what's happening in Italy around social co-ops and why it's become such a significant factor in Northern Italy. Right. Um, well, I think the, um, the background is that uh, the whole sort of uh, the emergence of social co-ops in Italy uh, was part of the move to deinstitutionalize 
um, uh, care for people with uh, intellectual or mental uh, sort of uh, disabilities. And it began uh, with, uh, you know, closing down, you know, the uh, sort of state-run, uh, uh, you know, mental institutions basically in the 70s. Um, but uh, the the thread that runs through uh, uh, the social uh, co-op movement in, in, in Italy was uh, the general disaffection or dissatisfaction of uh, families uh, with the quality uh, of the care that they uh, they were receiving, you know, for their loved ones. Uh, and this affected in particular people with intellectual or physical handicaps, um, uh, frail uh, elder seniors and, you know, elder care uh, facilities and so on. So um, one of the factors was this, the, the bureaucratization and the sort of inflexibility and the substandard quality of care that was provided to uh, the public by state-run institutions, uh, and so yep. there was that element. Um, the the second element of this, uh, uh, which fueled the rise of social co-ops, was uh, public policies on the part of the government, of uh, the state, uh, which dealt with the, the ongoing problem of public deficits and the um, the uh, urge to cut back on the provision of public services, and so uh, and and also. Uh, the notion that uh, the private sector and, and privatizing many of these public services would be more cost effective and, uh, than uh, government-run services, which is part of the whole neoliberal view of you know, the state's role in, in the provision of public welfare. And so uh, in the, uh, the case of social co-ops in Italy, there was already a very strong cooperative movement uh, in the country, as you know. Uh, and uh, they saw this as an opportunity really to expand the co-op model into the provision of social care, um, uh, which addresses both the question of the dis uh, dissatisfaction on the quality of public services provided by the state on the one hand, and from an ideological point of view, the conviction that democratizing uh, social care and providing more control over the design and delivery of that care to families and workers frontline workers that provided the care uh, would be a more effective way of both uh, increasing the quality and, and, and broadening the uh, range of the kinds of services that could be provided to, to communities, right? So those were the factors, I think, that fueled the rise of this alternative model uh, in Italy, which is neither a state-run uh, uh, model for the provision of social care, nor is it a for-profit privatized model of care, but a middle road model which relies on uh, uh, democratic user control uh, of the design and delivery of those services um, and providing um, a measure of um, a control on the part of local communities in designing the kind of care that is appropriate to their particular context, their particular needs, right? So those things combined, I think, to uh, emerge this uh, social co-op model in, in Italy. That movement began in the, in the late 70s. Um, it gathered momentum. Uh, with the help of the cooperative movement in Italy, uh, lobbying went underway to try and change the uh, regulatory and legislative a public policy that would allow social co-ops to provide these services. Uh, and so in 1991 legislation was passed uh, 
which formalized the role of social co-ops in the provision of social care. And today, there are about 14,000, I think, social co-ops operating in Italy, right? Uh, in all parts of the country, not just the north where they got their start, but throughout the country. Um, and I think the figures now are that uh, the social co-ops in Italy pr are, uh, provide an economic turnover of something like 40% of the nonprofit sector in the country, even though they comprise, uh, uh, I think it's something like 20-20% of the entities that are actually operating in, in the nonprofit sector. So the economic value uh, of social co-ops uh, is much higher, you know, than other more conventional not-for-profit entities are. So it's a very interesting and a very successful uh, model. And from what I've seen, probably the most uh, uh, innovative alternative for state-provided care on the one hand and for-profit privatized care on the other. And it's important to understand that while we're talking about social care, uh, my understanding is that there's also quite a lot of examples of labour integration practices within the cooperative sector. So, for example, former prisoners that are exactly. uh, seeking to, to be reintroduced into the labour market can also benefit from social cooperative type structures. Yes. Uh, in fact, um, the legislation on social co-ops in Italy uh, explicitly identifies uh, groups of people that are considered marginalised. Or, uh, and and which who are being identified as sort of targeting uh, these groups for reintegration into the labor market. And uh, uh, former prisoners are one such group. Uh, so it, it's not just, you know, uh, formerly incarcerated people, but people uh, that have uh, uh, drug dependencies, addictions, uh, and so on, are also a big part of the uh, demographic that social co-ops are, are, are serving. So in the case of uh, ex-prisoners, social co-ops uh, have been developed to um, transition them really from uh, a prison environment to uh, a working environment through the provision of training, counseling, uh, other kinds of systemic supports. Uh, and in, in uh, many cases, uh, social corps are providing a um, a place for uh, convicted individuals to serve out their sentences uh, uh, outside of prison. In other words, they're not sent to prison. They're they're working with a social co-op, uh, which is providing them the skills and reintegrating them into you know uh, the labor force. And so it is also serving as an alternative to actually serving prison time. And what's the evidence that the social cops are doing these things better than the state used to do? I think, uh, well, there's the um, there's a number of um, sources, you know, to get a sense of how well they're doing. One, I would say, which is very important, is uh, for the workers uh, in these social co-ops that are also members of the co-op, so they they have control rights, right, in the in the in the cooperative. Uh, the the quality of work satisfaction uh, is is far higher than it is for workers, for example, working in uh, in uh, elder care or in home care, for example. Uh, the level of worker satisfaction in social co-ops is substantially higher, both uh, from uh, uh, people working in the public service and for people working in the private sector. 
and that has an, uh, an enormous impact on the quality of care, right? Even though they also tend to make less money than they would uh, if they were public, uh, working in a public uh, service or in a for-profit. So uh, worker satisfaction is one area. The other um, uh, measure, I think, for uh, the success of the model is the testimony of families and members of these co-ops uh, that uh, are mm, responding to uh, research on you know, the quality of the care that they are receiving. And so the major issue here is the degree to which they can actually influence both the design and the mechanism of delivery for the care that they use. And so uh, user control, uh, uh, democratizing in effect, the, uh, the provision of care has led to an increase in the satisfaction on the part of the users for not only the quality of the care, but also the diversity of services that are now on offer, uh, which is far more diverse uh, than what was previously on offer on strictly state-provided programs, right? Uh, there, I'm sure there's more research on uh, deliverables or outcomes in terms of recidivism in the case of uh, prisoners, uh, certainly in the area of substance abuse. Uh, some of the social co-ops that are involved in that, some very large ones actually, uh, are reporting a far, far higher incidence of success in, in uh, preventing uh, the uh, return to uh, drug use uh, on the part of uh, people that are being served by those social co-ops uh, than uh, conventional models of uh, uh, providing care to people on, uh, with addictions, right? And, and that's been documented fairly well as well. Uh, so the, the trick to all of this is providing a model that offers uh, both workers and the users of services uh, the opportunity to actually control the design and the nature of the services that are delivered. And that is, uh, that is the primary factor in improving the quality of care. And, and that touches, John, on a very important point, which is what a cooperative is in this context, because a lot of right. people have their own preconceptions about what a cooperative <laughs> is. And, and what we're talking about might be regarded in British cases, a, a, a multi-stakeholder cooperative, where it's not simply the workers, but you've got different interest groups that are involved in, in the management and the running so that you've got that proper engagement by the people who are benefiting from the service. Right, right. Um, well, I mean, the basic uh, uh, premise of, of any co-op is... Uh, the democratic control uh, of the entity by the people that use it. So uh, in the case of a worker co-op, it would be the employees that would have control rights over how they organize and, and, and uh, uh, do their work. Um, in the case of social co-ops, it's the same principle, except that it's applied to actually the beneficiaries, the users of the service. Um, so um, democratizing uh, the design, uh, the structure and the delivery of any service uh, including a commercial uh, service uh, through a co-op is basically that principle of the um, uh, of an enterprise that is uh, collectively owned uh, uh, for the mutual benefit of the people that use that that service or are employed by that company. Right? And, and so, how does that work on a day-to-day -day basis with social co-ops in terms of who makes the decisions? 
Uh, and, well, it's very similar to any other co-op. Uh, the members would have uh, a structure that would have uh, typically um, a board of directors, uh, which uh, is elected by the membership to run the day, uh, day affairs of, of the cooperative. Uh, the board of directors uh, will be responsible for hiring a general manager or an executive director or a CEO of uh, the cooperative. Uh, and then the, uh, the management uh, is accountable directly to uh, a board of directors for their, uh, the quality of their work and, and uh, the provision of uh, the service that they offer. Um, and typically in a cooperative, uh, there's a, a general assembly of the members, which has to meet uh, at a minimum, uh, you know, once a year to elect a new board of directors, typically. Um, so it's, it's, uh, it's an accountability mechanism that ultimately devolves to uh, the members uh, who compose uh, the foundation of the cooperative, right? Uh, and in social co-ops, it's exactly the same. Uh, in the case of, uh, say, uh, a, a cooperative that provides um, uh, elder care services. Uh, in that case, what you would typically have is the employees uh, of that service would be uh, would have voting rights, uh, as would the families that use the service for uh, their elders, uh, and they would uh, have an annual assembly uh, to elect a new board of directors to pass a budget. Uh, to get a financial report from the management, you know, all the regular things you would expect uh, uh, a service to provide uh, basic information on the running of the company or the co-op. Uh, and then uh, the board of directors would be elected and then they would be responsible for the day-to-day -day management of the, of the social co-op as in any other co-op. I was very interested, John, in your comments about the fact that uh, it's spread beyond northern Italy and it's across much of Italy, because my understanding is that part of the the reason why co-ops were so successful and so widespread in northern Italy uh, as social co-ops was the fact mm. that the families had got split and there wasn't the same structure of social connectivity in northern Italy as there had been in southern Italy and it was a reflecting changes in family structure. So, so mm -hmm. what you're saying is that whatever those roots, it, it's gone geographically across the whole of Italy now. Yes, uh, and, um, and I think there are other reasons too why uh, social co-ops in a sense got a, a, a foothold in Northern Italy as opposed to Southern Italy. Uh, one of the factors is simply the the nature and the quality of the cooperative movement more general in northern Italy than in southern Italy. Um, uh, the, um, uh, the culture of cooperation and the um, cooperative institutions, in other words, the organizations that represent the interests of the cooperative model uh, in, in northern Italy, I think were much more advanced, much more uh, developed than they have been in other parts of the country. And this is also a reflection of the political culture which is very different in the north than it is in the south. Um, and so uh, it's not surprising, therefore, that uh, social co-ops would, uh, would have emerged in the north. Um, however, uh, the model has expanded not only to the rest of Italy, but also outside of Italy to other countries. So in Portugal, in Belgium, for example, uh, um, in France also, social co-ops have made uh, an appearance here in Canada, uh, uh, Quebec, for example, they're called solidarity co-ops in Quebec. 
have taken that model and have uh, really increased its presence in the provision of social care in Quebec. So um, it's not just Italy. I think what is happening is that social co-ops are providing uh, um, a response or a solution to the dilemma, I think, of the role of government in the provision of public services and the cutbacks in terms of the financing of public services and the attempt to find alternative models of the provision of these services is as intensively felt in the south of Italy as it is in the north of Italy. Uh, and so the model has uh, purchased uh, a space in the south of Italy. Um, and it's also interesting because they are also using social co-ops to address different kinds of um, uh, sort of public issues in the south and the are in the north. For example, social co-ops in the south of Italy uh, have been used, for example, to uh, address the question of um, uh, uh, organized crime uh, and the re recovery of, for example, um, uh, lands that had been under the control of the mafia in the south of Italy, uh, and then turning those lands into uh, productive farms, uh, wine uh, growing regions, uh, agriculture, and so on, and using social co-ops as a way of rehabilitating those lands which had been recovered from uh, the control of the mafia in the South. While that's a very different uh, use of the social co-op model in the South uh, than it is in the North, um, but it was simply adapting that model to the context of the South. Uh, and it's been, you know, I think very successful in doing that uh, and in mobilizing uh, you know, the qualities and the values of the social economy and the cooperative economy to very different uh, purposes uh, in the South than they are in the North, in addition to the provision of the kinds of things that social co-ops provide in the North as well, which is provision of healthcare services, social welfare, uh, the rehabilitation of uh, you know, former prisoners, uh, people with drug addiction, so on. That is also going on in the South. So um, I think the model has provided simply a solution uh, that the for-profit approach and the state-delivered approach still are not able to provide to the satisfaction, I think, of a lot of the social change organizations that are active in the South. You know, they're taking a good idea and adapting it. Now, one of the things that's very important for the development of cooperatives anywhere is the role of support agencies. And as you say, right. I mean, in Northern Italy, there's a long tradition of uh, cooperative development. Uh, and just how important has the role of support agencies been in the developing of social co-ops? Absolutely crucial, absolutely. Um, as I was mentioning earlier, one of the reasons why social co-ops got a, a, a start uh, is because of the support they received from the established cooperative uh, movement. So uh, at that time, there were three federa cooperative federations in Italy. Uh, and um, uh, each of them were historically identified with one or the other of the political parties and political movements in Italy. But the Lega Co-op, for example, which is the largest of the federations at the time, uh, devoted uh, technical expertise and uh, provided organizers co-op developers, and financing to support the emergence of this model. Uh, that wouldn't have been available in a place where there is uh, the absence of a federated uh, uh, institution 
that provides this kind of technical expertise to cooperatives or whatever type. So uh, the establishment of the model at the beginning uh, relied heavily on the commitment of uh, the cooperative institutions, uh, the federations uh, in Italy. Um, and then secondly, um, the lobbying for a change in public policy and in legislation that would formalize and, and normalize the operation of social co-ops. I mean, that was due to a concerted campaign, a political lobbying campaign on the part of the co-op movement generally to change the legislation relating to social co-ops. So that is totally dependent on having an organizational capacity to launch and maintain a, uh, a political campaign to lobby for uh, the change in public policy. Well, that, that depends on a, a system support in the form of federation for that kind of work. Uh, and then secondly, uh, once social co-ops started emerging and operating, uh, they in turn developed uh, what are called uh, in Italy consortio, consortia, which is networks of uh, cooperatives, smaller cooperatives that band together and form a second tier uh, support organization that provides them with basic uh, systemic support so that they can operate successfully. So things like uh, administration services, financial services, uh, technical support and training, um, uh, uh, computers, um, training in the use of those computers, data systems, logistical support, um, support for um, uh, bidding on public contracts. So for example, if there's a public contract that's being led out by a municipality for the provision of a healthcare uh, a clinic, for example, in the community. Um, small uh, uh, social co-ops don't have uh, really the capacity to bid on larger contracts. Well, if they band together and they actually pool their resources and expertise and offer it through a consortium to bid on that contract, then they're scaling up uh, and are able to compete with other competitors that are bidding for that same contract while remaining small locally, right? So that, again, is only possible because there is a systemic support in the form of a consortium that pulls together the expertise and resources of the smaller co-ops so that they can bid on those contracts, win those kinds of contracts, and actually deliver the services as well through the small entities that operate at a local level. So those kinds of political, administrative, technical uh, supports to these social co-ops are absolutely fundamental. Uh, for their for their success. Um, it's hard to see how they would actually be able to compete and deliver the kind of services they deliver without that. So the structure is you've got the individual social co-ops that are members of secondary cooperatives and also True. members of federations that give them political strength. Now part exactly. of that political strength in terms of what it's realised has been tax exemptions and also special loan facilities and also mm. preferential state purchasing policies to favour social cooperatives, which I imagine yes. all of which have been really important in the development of the social cooperative movement. Absolutely. And, and I mean, the, the critical factor here is uh, convincing uh, government that democratising social care in this way and providing control rights to workers and uh, users of social care, um, that the model can be effective. Um, and uh, convincing a, the government to actually provide 
institutional framework within which it can survive and flourish. Uh, and what is often lacking is even if, uh, in the case of other uh, countries you have, uh, in the UK, for example, there are organizations that provide these kinds of cooperative services, social co-op services, like home care, for example, or elder care. Um, they tend to uh, remain kind of isolated, disconnected uh, services uh, because uh, there isn't that kind of systemic support from the, from the um, uh, approach of public policy and, and, and legislation that provides a kind of financial uh, and legal frameworks within which these uh, kinds of organizations can federate, grow, get access to capital, get access to training, get access to the kind of uh, technical services that uh, that are operating now in the commercial sector. I mean, uh, you know, think about uh, the kind of systemic supports, legal public policy uh, that are available for the provision of uh, social care by for-profit companies. You know, uh, that is a very dense, uh, very effective network of institutional supports that support that model. Well, something similar has to be developed uh, for the support of a very different kind of model, which is uh, uh, democratized social care. Uh, that cannot exist in a vacuum. And uh, the 20 years of lobbying work that went into providing the legislative and public policy framework in Italy um, was... Uh, you know, a key factor that made possible the um, establishment of a social co-op alternative uh, in Italy. And the same thing would have to happen, for example, in the case of the UK, if, if you wanted to really expand the utility and impact of social co-ops in, in the UK. Without an institutional framework, uh, it's very difficult, you know, uh, both uh, from the point of view of, you know, just for raising capital, for example. Uh, private companies uh, can raise share capital and, and, and uh, finance, you know, the model of care that they're providing. Well, social co-ops don't have those kinds of tools. It's much more difficult for them to raise share capital. Uh, so they rely on things like, you know, tax uh, reform and tax subsidies to uh, support their operations. So, you know, this is a key uh, point, which is how do you sort of formulate uh, an approach to social care that is based on a very different set of values than for-profit uh, and also provide an institutional framework within which those kinds of values can actually uh, flourish, you know, and, and, and be made effective. And it's worth throwing in, John, a couple of comments here, one of which is that social care is a sector that's in crisis in both Britain and Ireland because it relies on uh, low pay, the exploitation of staff, and also, you've actually had a model uh, with private equity investing heavily in social care, and many of those businesses are really not in a very healthy state. So a lot of policymakers will be looking for alternatives, and, I, and personally, I hope they will look at, at social cops. But it's also worth comparing the social cop model with social enterprises, yes. because people often look at social enterprises as if they are the same as cooperatives, which they right. aren't. And one of the right. weaknesses of social enterprises is they don't have the clarity of legal structure that we're talking about here. And one of the things that uh, is very attractive about social co-ops is the, the fact that uh, structurally they're not able to distribute the value of assets if they're wound up. Whereas we've had an issue where I am in Northern Ireland, where some of the social enterprises have, have been wound up, have sold assets, 
and those the value that's extracted has gone into the hands of individuals rather than for the benefit of the community. So I think right. that's important to stress that you've got that structural defense of the value in the social cooperative movement in Italy. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that's premised on, you know, what is what is the sort of, should I put it, the operational logic of social cooperatives. In other words, what's their ultimate purpose? Uh, and if the ultimate purpose of an organization is the, the production of social value or social benefit uh, or community benefit, then those kind of constraints on how uh, profits or surpluses may be used are absolutely fundamental. Uh, um, I mean, there, there are examples of cooperatives, for example, uh, not social co-ops, but other uh, forms of co-op, that um, uh, when they lose track of that kind of uh, communitarian or social mission, uh, can also um, violate you know, the, the basic ethical principle of, of cooperatives uh, and, and, and sell out, you know, or, and there are attempts to privatize cooperatives all the time. So this uh, constraint around social co-ops, at least in the legislation in, in Italy, which uh, prohibits the uh, extraction of, you know, private profits, you know, from the social co-op uh, is, is a basic safeguard uh, for uh, the co-op to pursue its primary social value and community benefit mission, right? Um, there's something else that we should also touch on, I think, uh, which is it's, it's also very difficult um, for uh, social co-ops uh, to, uh, over the long term, when you talk about it as an alternative model from government on the one hand or, or for profits on the other, uh, it, it's, it's difficult to, to perceive that over the long term without understanding that social co-ops demand a different kind of understanding of what a market is. And if the only way we can think of markets is in terms of a private capitalist market, which is exchange, you know, things are produced and exchanged purely for their commercial value as a for-profit, you know, uh, undertaking, uh, that social co-ops actually operate in a different kind of a marketplace, which is a social value market. And so how do you create um, a social value market in which social cooperatives can actually earn a living, provide a service without recourse to the extraction of uh, private profit from uh, the production and, and distribution of that service? And so um, the idea of a social marketplace where what is produced and exchanged is social value and public benefit and how you evaluate that and how you enable organizations to actually flourish using that kind of an understanding of the market is I think a, cre a key sort of um, uh, operational and economic principle that needs to be better understood. And then like the commercial market, uh, which operates on the a, on a, on a, on a basis of private profit, develop institutions, policies, and mechanisms where social cooperatives can actually survive and flourish under a completely different understanding of what a market is and who it serves. That's a, that's a very helpful comment, actually, John. And I think it's worth mentioning that, uh, that really the marketization of social care, at least in the United Kingdom, has been a complete failure. I mean, that simply mm. is not a sector that has worked as part of the, the private sector or no. as part of the market no. economy. And the other thing I would mention, Paul, is that all of this is getting is going to get worse. Uh, the... Um, 
and we're, we're touching now on the role and sort of the, the, um, the centrality of social care uh, generally uh, in, uh, in, in political economy and how states and how they relate to public welfare uh, uh, evolve in over the next 20 or 30 years. Um, traditionally, uh, you know, social welfare programs have been, at least, you know, uh, in the industrialized countries, used to, um, in a sense, uh, uh, deal with the, the, the market failures, both of the state and of the private sector. So you have people that are unemployed, you have people that are not being served because they have various disabilities or whatever, marginalized individuals. Uh, that contingent, uh, that demographic of people that are going to be needing uh, social care or, or some form of social welfare is going to increase, not only because of the ideology of places like the United States and the UK, which uh, favors kind of neoliberal sort of privatization of public services, but because of the growing precarity of the population from the point of view of access to paid uh, work. Uh, with the rise of automation, of uh, artificial intelligence, robotics, and so on, something like 50% of existing jobs are gonna disappear in the next 20 years. What's gonna to happen to all of these people? How do you actually uh, uh, maintain their connection you know, to a, an economy that is no longer, uh, uh, has no space for them? Uh, and so the precarity of the workforce is demanding a completely new understanding of what is the role of a state or a government with respect to the public welfare. And so the role of social care and social welfare is only going to become more and more intense uh, in the coming period uh, because of the changing nature of, of, of the labor force and, and the fact that so many people, not just people that have disabilities, but you know, healthy, hale, and hearty individuals that simply are going to be unemployable because their jobs have disappeared. How do you actually deal with that? And social care is absolutely crucial to how a government is actually going to respond to this, you know, broader social crisis and social co-ops, the emergence of social markets, um, new forms of um, providing not only care but also a meaningful kind of working life to people uh, is going to be absolutely fundamental. That raises the question, for example, of universal basic income, which is already on the agenda of a lot of uh, governments. How does that factor into something like the emergence of a social co-op model for the provision of social care, or just the provision of, you know, uh, meaningful work for individuals? John Mustakis, that is really very interesting and a very extensive conversation there. Thank you very much indeed, John. I much appreciate your time. Okay, Paul. Okay, Paul, fascinating conversation there. And John goes on the, a great deal of detail on, on how you run a cooperative and how you run a social cooperative by engaging people. So what made it work? What was the, the real transformational thing that, that made social cooperatives work in Italy? Well, the first thing was that there was an existing cooperative movement there, which was able to support new cooperatives that came through. So that was important, but also because it had a voice and an influence over government, they were able to change the statutory system to help the cooperatives. So for example, there were exemptions on tax rates, uh, the special loan facilities that have been arranged, but also the cooperatives were able to get around the usual procurement rules that government uh, has in place so that you got preferential purchasing policy towards those social cooperatives. 
And the other thing which I think is worth mentioning is that because you've got a clear legal structure, it avoids the situation where individuals can basically game the system by personally benefiting from this. We've had that problem with the building societies where the members voted to uh, demutualize and take the profits out of it. But we've also had examples, we won't mention the names of them, where you've got social enterprises that had large amounts of financial support from government and there were allegations that the founders actually sold off the assets after a period of time and took some of the profits for themselves. So this type of strong legal structure protects the interests of the people who are supposed to benefit from the social co-ops. Yeah, and I like the idea too that they have looked at all our issues and John mentioned that they look at reclaiming land from mafia and how it's going to be used. And uh, Do you think it's a model that could be used here? Um, is it something that, it's like you said, social care is in crisis? Is there a way that we could deal with that? And how, is the problem here that it takes legislation? Do, well, do think, you make it work? Yeah, well, I think th this needs to be heard by political leaders uh, in order that they, they can actually consider how the social care system needs to evolve, be reformed. And it's clear that the system does need to be reformed. But, I mean, I think it's important to stress, Gerard, this is not just about social care. It's also about labour integration. Mm. And I think that is where there could be a significant... Um, level of support within Northern Ireland because you've got former prisoners who are able to be reintegrated into the labour market through this type of structure. We've got lots of problems, for example, with former drug users in Northern Ireland, people who need to move on from addiction, who then need to get back into the labour market. And this could perhaps provide a model where people who've been excluded from the labour market can find a way back in. So it's not so it's not just about social care in terms of supporting individuals who are uh, in health terms marginalised and, uh, and need support. It's also about people being bringing back younger people into the labour market. I think this could really offer some strong, positive opportunities. Yeah, well, right. Well, thanks for having the conversation with John and thanks to John for taking the time. I, I know he took a good long time with you and we really appreciate it. So thanks to, to everybody who supports the podcast, the Community Relations Council for our funding and to Michael Barwise who pulls the edit together at the end. And we'll talk to you again soon.